Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today I'm talking to Jane Purden, CEO of Women in Football, the organisation that champions and supports women across the professional game. Jane's a lawyer who has a track record at the highest level of football and sport generally, most recently as Head of Governance and Leadership at UK Sport and previously as Director of Governance with the Premier League. Before that, she was Club Secretary at Sunderland. If you enjoy our podcasts, you can sign up for our weekly briefing via the website unofficialpartner.com. Here is Jane Purden. Yeah, thanks, Jane, for for joining us on Unofficial Partner. Much appreciated. Great to be here, Richard. What's What's lockdown look from your look like from your perspective? Really good question. So we at Women in Football have taken the opportunity to connect with our members online. We know the world is doing that with their stakeholders, but we've had a fantastic response from our members to a series of roundtables we've been hosting on on the inevitable Zoom. And it's such a simple concept. It, it's not us talking to them, it's, it's them talking to each other. And in fact, I'm kicking myself, Richard, thinking, why didn't we think to do this a year ago? Why didn't it take the virus to, to, to build these connections? And then we're taking the opportunity to plan for, for when all this is over because we're quite an events-driven organisation yeah. and keeping a, a weather eye on what football's going to look like when it emerges. So how? just take us through the organisation because obviously you, you and we'll, we'll talk about you in a minute in terms of how you got to where you are today but just to fill us in for those people that don't know what women in football is just give us a, a quick idea how many how many people in the organization what it does what it's remit yeah so women in football is there to support celebrate advocate for and champion every woman who works in football who earns her living from it and every woman who'd like to and also what we call our male allies, the, the men who support our aims. We're a member organisation and we've got over 3,000 members and we fulfil our mission by a series of uh, activities, really. We run courses and leadership development and personal development courses for women working in the game. We showcase and highlight great stories from women working in the game I absolutely love bringing out the stories people might not have heard before, the, the stories that make people go, oh, I didn't know a woman could do that in football. <laughs> and we work closely with the football industry as well and trying to work ever closer with football because we know that this is an industry that's changing, that's very, very open to and sympathetic to what we're all about. It's an industry that wants to change, but sometimes maybe needs a little bit of a, a helping hand to do that. So there's a, there's a couple of questions. I mean, how many women work in football today? It's a really good question, Richard, and nobody knows because nobody's gone out and got the data. But I do a couple of bits of mental arithmetic which give me a kind of answer. So let me t- talk you through my workings. Um, about a year ago, so early last year, the Premier League published an impact study which they produced with, I think, Ernst & Young, and it showed the impact of the Premier League on the UK economy. And it wasn't just about jobs, but there were a couple of job stats in there which are interesting. And the first was that the Premier League and its 20 clubs directly employ 13,000 full-time equivalent posts. So that's 13,000 full-time jobs might be 
more actual people because some of those jobs might be part-time. Okay. So that's the clubs plus the league that's itself. The, the league yeah. itself. Then the other stat that was in there was that the Premier League supports something like 100,000 jobs in the UK. And I'm not surprised by that because the Premier League, who I used to work for, funds youth football all the way through the EFL. Likewise, the community programmes. When we also add in media, broadcasting, that's a lot of people. So that's an indication of the size of the, the football labour force, if you like. How many women... Well, nobody's gone out and and surveyed the industry to get the data. But based on my own experience, I reckon it's something between 25 and 40 percent. If you took 25 percent and applied it to either of those figures, either the 13,000 or the the 100,000, it's thousands. Mm. It's possibly even tens of thousands to the point when when I first did this piece of mental arithmetic, I went, wow. You know what? English football couldn't exist without its female workforce. There's a lot of us there. We, we quite often focus on the top of the pyramid in terms of board representation. Um, and that's a question, but I'll, I'll just hold that for a moment. But is there any pattern to the jobs that women are doing? Well, again, nobody's really surveyed this. So the evidence is anecdotal, but I can tell you there are women at the most senior levels. There are three Premier League clubs who currently have female CEOs. There are women throughout the C-suite. And again, we can point to examples who are directors of you know, football or legal or marketing and comms throughout Premier League clubs. You do find but that, and, and in this, I think football just reflects Britain, that certain uh, football jobs such as retail, catering, there may be more women in them, you know, the cleaners the, the, um, that every club needs. Mm. Um, underrepresented throughout leadership positions, although women are there and it's growing, and certainly underrepresented in what I call the tracksuit roles, be that in male professional football, be that as managers, coaches, um, medics, sports scientists, etc. Although, again, on when we look at physios, sports scientists, we can point to individual examples and it's coming, it's coming, but not there in sufficient numbers yet. And do we know in terms of, of the comparison of football with, I mean, other business sectors or other sports? Is it, is it ahead or is it behind? I, again, I have to come back to my perception and I would say... In some measures, it's a little bit behind. In some measures, it's it's probably aligned with the rest of the UK. I know you want to get on to talk about boards, but I think it's certainly behind when it comes to. Well, let's let's talk about that then. So, what's the what's the picture of boy? I mean, I I counted eleven at Premier League level. Is that right in terms of eleven yeah. women? There's a, a somebody did a survey. A, a law firm called Farrers did a great survey of this, which they published in December, which gives the stats across private, what they call private clubs, which means not just football clubs but but rugby clubs. I haven't got it at my fingertips, I'm afraid, Richard. But if you tell me it's eleven, it wouldn't surprise me. Now, I want to be fair. We talk about the football industry as if it's one big thing, and it is. But within it, uh, individual clubs. And they all have their own unique culture, approach, style, values. And some clubs do have diverse boards. 
But where I think football is falling behind with board diversity, the, the, the right comparison to look at, well, I think here we can clearly look at the rest of the UK. So PLCs are just about hitting or they're slightly under the 30% target, which the the UK governance code that they have to either comply with or explain why they're not complying with says is the right figure. The rest of British sport, which includes all organisations who receive public funding, they are across all those boards of all the national governing bodies, and I'd include the FA in this, 40% of all directors are women. And so we see this trend in PLCs, in, in, the, in other sporting bodies. We see it in the not-for-profit sector, in charities. You know, diverse boards are now becoming normal in mm. the UK. Um, certainly on gender, everybody has a lot more work to do when we look at some of the other protected characteristics, particularly on BAME and ethnicity. There's a lot of work to be done there. But just focusing on gender, football club boards are beginning to look very behind the curve on this. I'm just wondering where we are in this, um, you know, on, on the road to to equality at a board level, for example. Yeah, so our vision is a football industry which is truly diverse in all roles and at all levels. And where we are now, I think football is better than it used to be, but not as good as it needs to be. So how can we help and what do women in football do? Well, we do two things. You need to approach this issue, firstly, by working with the, the decision makers at the top. And as I say, many of them completely get it. You know, I was speaking to a Premier League club CEO not so long ago, and he said to me, Jane, 25% of my fans are women. 25% of our staff are women and 25% of those that our community programme engages with are women. And I want to up all those numbers, all of them. And he completes, completely gets it. To a large part, we're not having to go and make the argument and explain why diverse teams work better and quote all the academic research which shows that mm. because people get that and they understand it they're more in the phase like okay we get that but how do we make it happen so we will engage with the industry and um, let me give you some examples of our work we were hosting a series of, of round tables private ones for the HR leaders and all the big football employers we did one in Manchester in February sadly we've had to pause our plans for the next one because of what's going on um, and we got them together to really workshop these these questions how do we as an industry attract recruit develop nurture retain and promote diverse talent and actually, there's a lot of answers out there in the industry already. People are doing it. And our role is to kind of capture and harness that thinking, bring it together. Our plan is when we've completed this series of workshops around the country that we'll then publish what we hope will be a fairly kind of definitive and user-friendly and helpful guide. This is how you do it. This is what people have told us. So that's how we that, – that's, that's the – the kind of top end, if you like, the existing decision makers, that's how we engage with them. 
We also need to support the underrepresented groups, and in our case, women, and help them develop the, the skills they need. And often it's a question of confidence, Richard. You know, it's amazing how many women, a lot of men too, have imposter syndrome and a lack of confidence. And anybody who's talked to me for any length of time will know that at some point in the conversation, I'll bang the table and say, always, always, always apply for the job you don't think you're going to get the job that you think is beyond your grasp that you haven't got a, a hope in hell of getting because you never know um, and that's so important if we can get people to have that self-belief and an authentic genuine self-belief grounded in a true understanding of themselves and their strengths and we run a leadership program which works on that and and many other things so long answer but in short how do we how are we going to change things Number one, working with the industry and, and helping them. And number two, helping develop the talent pool and, and connecting the two together. Do, do, is there a sort of qualification that you're offering or is it a is it is it less formal than that? So it's less formal. It's not accredited with a, a, a university or anything like that, although that's something we're, we're looking at. We've just expanded the offer. We, we partner with Barclays, who've been fantastic to us and... They're super keen to support this as well. As you know, they're the title sponsor of the WSL. They're a founding partner of the Premier League. And so we fit in really nicely with their kind of football portfolio, if you like. And we see the benefits of that all the time. There's lots of mutual connections and conversations. Um, and with their support, we've been able to expand our leadership course to a four-day course, although people can do a day at a time. They don't have to do it all four days at once. We think that flexibility is important to fit in with careers. Um, and we it's delivered by people who have worked in the game for many years, so we know what it's like. And while a lot of the topics are the things you will find on many leadership courses, like your leadership style or how to be your best self or looking at your own personal brand and how you present to the world, that kind of thing... I think where we're unique and our USP is we we teach and coach this in the context of football and we do it with people, our, our course leaders and, and lecturers and tutors who are people, women, who have worked in football for many, many years. We understand the issues that arise, we understand the structures, we understand the, the culture we, if you do the leadership course, I mean, another thing we've been able to add on to the to those who um, finish all four days is we don't just leave it there. That's it, you're done. We now are able to offer some coaching, um, some group coaching, and we're keeping in touch with our leadership group because they're a really kind of powerful cadre of women in the game who we all know have got very bright futures. You know, quite often people are talking about how you your career is developed is is a mixture of that that sort of knowledge input but it's also as an informal network isn't there that that the bit that's that seems to be the most difficult bit to crack i always think yes absolutely we are and as you know richard the football workforce is very geographically spread out it's it's all over okay yeah. because that's where the clubs are so we were 
super excited at the start of the year because again with with the support of Barclays one of the things that enabled us to do was was get out on the road and go to where the football is which is why we did this big week-long um, program of events in Manchester in February with our leadership course at the centre and we but we built other events around that and were able to bring people in get them engaged with each other get them networking um, so we had this event with the HR directors and, and actually, without giving too much away, one or two of them said, I have heard conversations, say, people saying, it's great to meet you at last. And, and they hadn't talked to each other before. So, you know, to make that connection was fantastic. We did another event at BBC Sport, who obviously are in Manchester, they're at Salford, um, and brought in, you know, people with a more media kind of interest there. Um, and actually, we... we we regularly um, speak to our members and we did a member survey recently and we will be publishing results. I'm not going to say too much about it, but I will say that the number one ask from our members was exactly this. They said, we want to meet more women working in the game. And so by being a member of Women in Football, which is free and, and it's open to women and men who support our aims, we can run this program of events which connects people with each other and enables them to build their networks with each other and also we can run events with uh, people in the game and we're doing a series of those at the moment like everybody is you know we're doing some fireside chats and conversations online with kind of high profile people within the game and connect our members with with them as well so they can see the people that they might one day want to be like you know think oh well I'm, I want to have that career I want to do what that person is doing and then hopefully we can give them the roadmap for how to get there. So let's just talk about you for a moment then so um, you were at Sunderland is that right is that, is that was that the first job in football that you had? That was my first job in football I am actually a Sunderland lass I know I don't have the accent but I am um, <laughs> And so that was a bit of a dream job when I got that job because it was sort of I've been living in London for a while, but I, it was a return to my my girlhood club and the club of my heart to be their club secretary and in-house lawyer. Yeah. And how long were you there? I was there four years between two thousand and one and two thousand and five, and four quite eventful years. In the middle, in 2003, the club got relegated. I know, sadly, with Sunderland, they, they have a track record of that. Um, but I learned very quickly, it was only my second year working in football, that it can be a very difficult industry. It is not all glamour and stardust and, oh, wow, I'm working in football. As we all know, it's a very emotional business. And when you work for the club you support you got the emotional load of being gutted at the season's performance and the relegation, but you're also seeing people being made redundant because the club had to restructure to face life in the championship. Um, so very, very difficult experience. But when I, What was the ownership group of that? Was that the Irish um, sort no, of, uh, group or was that before then? It was a guy uh, called Sir Bob Murray. Okay. Uh, who'd owned it for he owned it for many years um he eventually sold it to the irish group and he his legacy and i've got a lot of time for bob things didn't always work out on the pitch as he would be the first to say but i have a lot of time for him because he built the stadium of light and he built the academy of light the training ground and they are well built you know they are 
great facilities. So he renewed the the kind of hard infrastructure of the club, good for the for a hundred years. And mm. um, and he also, I often tell this story, said to me on several occasions, I like having women in the club. I like having them on my board. I like having them in the senior management because they bring something different to it. So he really was so affirming about gender diversity and he'd see he'd learned that you know he hadn't gone on a course and people had told him that he's a a self-made uh, man very wealthy uh, through his own businesses and he'd learned that that i think through experience that diverse teams are better so i had a a great introduction to working in the game in that kind of culture and environment where women were were welcomed and valued is there any, when you go from club to club, obviously from there you went to the Premier League, is that right? Yes. Is there any um, sort of anything in common with clubs that you think are well run, other than the gender question, but that, you know, that that's a central bit of it. But is there anything that you've noticed that, that the difference between a good club and a, a badly run club? I think it's a really astute question. Let me think about it, Richard. It's it's going to take me a moment. And what was it, just while you're thinking about it, then let's go on to the Premier League. What was what was your role at the Premier League? So at the Premier League, I I started as head of football administration. I was there for ten years um, from 2005, and I think it was 2011. I was uh, promoted to become director of governance, so making sure that the governance of the Premier League and the clubs was ship shape really. Um, yeah, I have an answer now. <laughs> Don't Go for it. So I think the clubs who were really well run, they had the right people with the right skills and the right experience. And it's always a team effort as well. Um, one person cannot by themselves run organisations of that size and complexity because none of us are right all the time, right? Yeah. You need other people. Um so having really good, skilled, experienced people, but people who were also, they had sufficient humility to work as a team and realise it's not all about me and I don't get everything right. I need good people around me. And I've seen that with club chairmen. I've seen it with club CEOs. I've seen it with managers as well. So much, if you're in a leadership position, so much depends on having the right team around you. Is there any way of engineering that, going in and, and making sure that that happens? Oh, 100%, yes. And this is where your your recruitment policies come into play. I think recruiting for a key position, you have to be very clear about the skills and experience that you need and recruit according to that and be super, super targeted about, about that. But also have, have a, a mind and an eye on those qualities as well of, of, of the person uh, what are they like working in a team um, some of those softer skills that I, I have learned through the years is so important like listening proper listening um, to hear what people are really saying reflecting on it and then responding um, so yeah it's about getting it right and, and the old style football I am going back 20 possibly even 30 years Again, I'm not singling it out. It probably wasn't like 
that different from much of Britain. But it didn't operate like that. It was kind of phone a friend, you know, we've got a vacancy, or oh, I know a bloke, and in, in a, invariably it was a bloke who does this at another club. He'd be great. Let, let's call him. And he may or may not have been great, but but football has moved to, yeah, let's let's recruit openly and just see who applies and see what comes in the door. I've done it myself in many roles, and if anybody's ever been in that position of a recruiter, if you get it right, you can often be really surprised by some of the candidates who put themselves forward in a very positive way. And you think, oh, I, I never thought I need a person with that or that bit of that person's profile or that bit of their experience. But actually, I can see how that would be really helpful. Do you think that that, you know, in terms of the, the say, the way in which football has, has developed, I mean, there's there's a sort of element that, the profile of football is is always quite sort of out of whack with the reality of the organisations that, you know, of a club, for example, which is quite often a sort of, it's got the practices of a sort of small, medium enterprise, whereas it's got the profile of a much bigger organisation than that. And we're always surprised sometimes, at, you know, as you say, it's, it's I know someone who can do that job rather than a more sort of uh, rigorous recruitment process and that that's i guess is the development of the game as well as you know it's 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 gender is a part of that but it's also a part of just the size and and professional level of professionalism in football i guess i think again i think that was football 30 years ago i think if you look at the big clubs now you know they are global brands they employ upper hundreds of people if not thousands they turn over hundreds of millions um a year and they operate like that that they they that's how they conduct themselves and all this stuff about open public recruitment again i know from speaking to their hr directors and ceos that's not news to them they've been doing it for years now because that's how part of how you keep your edge right in a hugely competitive environment you want the best people on and off the pitch so it, again let's let's be fair to football many of them do operate very good practice um, not everybody, and and there's a resource question here as well. Because if you are turning over eight hundred million pounds a year, you can afford to employ a great HR team, great diversity specialists, recruitment consultants, whatever you need to go and get the best in the world. And some of them, when these key positions come up, be it CEO, be it you know C-suite or director, they they just want the best people in the world at that particular job, and they've got the resource to go and get them. Not everybody has that resource. So there are challenges and different practices lower down the pyramid. But um, even there, I, I do think we've seen a real change. It's, it's not the business it used to be by any means. What's the current sort of crisis revealing about football, do you think? I think it's revealing a few things. I think, first of all, how important it is to all of us because mm. we we'll miss it, right? Mm. <laughs> Um, I don't know about you, but I've been glued to Euro 1996 on ITV4. And it's just so wonderful to watch football on, on TV again. Um, I think in a business sense, we won't see the full impact of this until football restarts. And the two critical questions there, when's it going to restart and on what basis? I don't know for sure, but it feels to me like a restart might be soon. But we will not see crowds at a football game for, for some time yet. And why this is important, it's important for many reasons. 
firstly as fans we want to enjoy the spectacle we want to be able to go to the game if we can't go to the game we at least want to be able to, to watch it on tv and that's the most important thing but secondly it's important in terms of money and cash flow and will football be impacted yes i think it will i think there's going to be a period where there's going to be less money in the game and particularly for those competitions and leagues that don't have big tv revenues there's going to be a difficulty will football recover 100% yes it will within 2 3 years god willing and hopefully the virus will have, have disappeared um and we should be back to where we are but i think there's going to be a real judge and a real period where we things are going to be difficult and that concerns me it really does it's quite often a, also a period of of great opportunity isn't it in terms of a you know a moment like this i guess with an organisation like yours and you're you're looking to to make change it's a there is i wonder what potential there is in this moment that you can sort of jump forward what what is it you would like to see what's the ideal that you're looking and working towards when will we know that women in football has been a success we will know when women in football has been a success when we don't need to exist as an organization <laughs> yeah honestly it's it's one of those jobs where you think i'm trying to work to my own redundancy that's what i'm doing here um but you raise a good point, and I think it's a great opportunity for everybody who loves football and is concerned in it to think about what would we like to be different, even if some of that is real kind of blue sky thinking. And I think what I would like to see is I'd like to see women's football front and centre of the return of football. I'd like to see it back on our screens ASAP. I'd like to see if we can, and public health has to come first, but I'd like to see it played at grounds ASAP and actually it, that might be an easier ask than a men's Premier League game because they're just smaller games they don't get as many fans they're, they're, they don't need as many club staff to put them on in huge stadiums um, so I'd really like to see that and the huge gains that the, the women's game has made for them not to be lost because of this mm. I think there's some big structural questions about football to ask and I with my Premier League background you know I I, I do see I think, I think I said earlier that the Premier League with its huge revenues I've never seen that as a bad thing never but I think when you are that wealthy either as an individual or a corporation the responsibility is not oh I can't be this wealthy I think it's absolutely fine but you have to act as a good citizen um, in your community and and again in my time at the Premier League and still they, they do literally give away a lot of their money I talked about how they fund youth development and community programmes um, and a lot of clubs have invested in their, their women's teams I'd like to see those um, I'm, I, I, I think we need to make sure that all those costs and they are costs these are not operations that kind of pay for themselves are preserved Um you know, up until COVID, I'd never had a problem with, with players being paid what they were. Never. I think it's fair enough. You know, it's market forces. They all pay tax, which they do. UK um, PAYE, just like the rest of us. Um, and that, as the Premier League, I think, have been, or some of the players have been quick to point out recently, is, is an awful lot of money. Um, so, so I kind of get that. But there's a but. There is a but. 
which is maybe it ties in with how we're all feeling about wider society. We've all learned some lessons through this. What's really important? Who is really important? Is our society unequal? Should we do something to make it more more equal? And and football may maybe some of those questions need to be asked about football as well. Well, in terms of the, I remember talking to Tracy Crouch, the, uh, the obviously former sports minister, and she made the point about the would the women's super league thrive more under the Premier League or, you know, being organised by the Premier League rather than by the FA? What what do you think about that question? I think that there's, listen, if if there's one thing the Premier League does brilliantly, and again, I'm biased because I worked there for 10 years, but if if there's one thing the Premier League does absolutely brilliantly, it's run football leagues, right? The world Mm. league credit, the best in the world. So I absolutely get it. And there are club people who bring massive expertise whether it's about marketing whether it's about comms whether it's about um sports science and medicine whether it's about coaching or whatever so i i absolutely get the argument i think that the fa and the premier league are right to take their time to look at it and work out what's best i my own hope is that that may happen it may not at the moment, there's a there's a, a, a sort of sub board within the FA that looks after the WSL, and uh, the people on that board are largely club people. Most of them I've had the pleasure of knowing or working with at some point. And they're excellent people. What is important is that the governance is right, and whether it stays with the FA or moves to the Premier League, it has to be nourished, nurtured, grown. So we have people there who are committed to its growth and who, who properly back it. And at the end of the day, and and this I think worries me a little bit, I, I don't want to see women's football ending up being run by men. You know, that wouldn't be right. Mm. It needs mm. its own governance space where the, the voices of the players can be heard, the voices of the fans can be heard, etc etc and again you you always 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 have to appoint the right person for the job you know if you're appointing for a marketing direction you you've got a short list of two and the man is clearly better than the woman appoint the man you know that's super super important and and i guess the question is why is it because you think it's an important signal to the world that uh, this is a women's leadership role or is it because you think it would be done better um i somewhere in the middle because I passionately believe that diverse teams are the best teams um, and it shouldn't just be run by women absolutely not Um, it should be run by diverse leadership in which women are you know the Australians have a great measure 40-40-20 that your your leadership if you like should be 40% men 40% women the 20 is actually to say at any one time, you always want to appoint the best person for the job. So you'd never go absolutely 50-50 as your target because if you have 100 employees and one vacancy and you've got 50 men and 49 women, you never want to be in the position of saying, we've got to appoint a woman. You know, it's, it's got to be some flex. And I think 40-40-20 is right. Um, but my at, at the minute, um, or let me put it another way, if that's right for women's football, it's got to be right for men's football. I think that's my point. 
we need the best people, but if we're doing it right, it should be hitting the 40-40-20 rule in women's football and men's football as well. Mindful, because this is the other thing you have to do when you're building a kind of governance structure, mindful of allowing the critically important voices through. And one of the critically important voices is the players, who obviously are all, all women. Um, but yeah, so I'm not saying it's got to be led by women, but I think if we got to a position where, you know, suppose there were 20 clubs in the WSL and only three of the WSL club CEOs were women, I think that was so wrong. But if it's wrong in women's football, why is it right in men's football? Hmm. What was the when you were in charge of governance at the Premier League? What was the main challenge there? What do, can you just define what that role is? Yeah, so the role grew and came into being really as a result of the Premier League's revenues growing and and becoming so stratospheric. And my kind of personal mission statement, this wasn't the Premier League's, but the way I always saw my job was to make sure that all the money flows and all the people connected with the money flows and the whole operation was legal, decent, honest and truthful. So to make sure we had complete transparency over the money, we knew where where it was all coming from, who it was going to, to make sure that the people who could own clubs and be directors of clubs were... We, we didn't kind of certify them as, yes, they're a good egg and they're absolutely competent to, to run a football club. But we, we did have a test that would rule out people with kind of known sort of bad incidents on their records, such as uh, criminal records or having been banned by a sporting organisation um, for whatever reason. Um, looking at agents, banning third-party ownership, that's something I'm hugely proud of that we did years ahead of FIFA doing it and we advocated for years to get FIFA to do it and then they did. Um, And trying, you know, in my head I always saw it, really as I said before, I don't don't mind this organisation being super wealthy and these clubs being super wealthy. I think that's fine. If anything, I think that's to be celebrated that people around the world want to buy this uniquely British product you know I was super proud of that but but the big question is then what do you do with the money and 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 to be a good citizen and and to act responsibly with it so yeah it was just making sure everything was transparent and and clean and um I used to say that I want to be able to look any football fan in the eye and 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 say I promise you every money that comes in every penny that goes out we know who it's come from we know where it's going to um right we're going to fin- finish off now okay uh, and I've got a question have you seen the Sunderland documentary yes what do you think is it is it a fair reflection of life inside a club I know it's a different generation of owners etc but what do you think look at watching it I find it very difficult to watch because it's my club Hmm. and obviously in both series of the documentary neither of them had a happy outcome Um, I really enjoyed when they bring the fans in and some of the kind of characters like the the priest who you know I'm lucky enough to know I've met him once or twice and he officiated at a good friend's wedding and he's a super guy Um, is it typical of what goes on in the club I think I get back to my point about we talk about football as one thing, but every club's individual. And I, yeah. I, I've no doubt it's what went on in Sunderland during those seasons that they've covered. 
I've got to be honest and say I would really hope in terms of you know the, some of the predicaments of the club that were were um, unveiled there that it's not typical. I think one of the surprises, particularly in the first series, was um, how well some of the players came across, and I don't think a lot of people had realised that that you know the players do actually really care. They're people too. Um, again, we we saw some other incidents of players uh, you know disappearing on because they just wanted to go to another club. But some of the players in that first series really spoke from the heart and spoke very well, I thought. And it showed, in terms of my city, I think it showed that really well. I think it was a fair reflection of, of Sunderland, the, 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 the great stuff about Sunderland, some of the rougher edges about Sunderland, which is not, sadly, a, a wealthy town, as we all know. Um, so, so I had a few moments of laughter and a few tears as well, I have to say. <laughs> well, it sounds like that's the, the perfect story, isn't it? Like a documentary. <laughs> but uh, well, listen, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. If people um, want to join or get in touch, what can they do? How can they get hold of you? So, womeninfootball.co.uk or on Twitter at womeninfootball. Just get in touch. It's super easy. We we welcome new members. It's completely free to join. Um, just get on the website or look for us on Twitter and, and sign up. Perfect. Okay. Thanks very much, Jane, for your time. Very welcome. I've really enjoyed it, Richard. Thank you.